Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you guys all found parking. I've been hearing just tragic stories of having to walk three, four, five blocks all the way to church. Poor suffering saints of God. Well done this morning. Um, Hey, just for those of you, I'm not a slob. I didn't survive a little bit of confrontation with my coffee cup this morning, so it's like all over the front of me. But I'm realizing now that I think most of it's hidden right here. So, okay, we're good to go. Week number three in, uh, in our series through the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray one more time. I'd invite you now just to settle in and uh, take in a breath and be aware that you're alive. And we are united this morning with the church global, this local expression, this brick in the wall of the temple of Jesus Christ's family. We here are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so as you breathe in, you breathe in presence, you breathe in life, you breathe in his power, his grace, because his blood has covered and made us new in the presence of the Spirit and power of the Spirit. We ask now, Spirit, that you would commune with us in the teaching of this text and in this incredible prayer that you would teach us to pray, that we would be a people of deep prayer, prayer for the nations. And even this morning, Lord, as We prayed over Morocco and Libya, underground church in China, prisoners in North Korea, the global church, Lord. Though we had to walk oh so many blocks this morning to our gathering, our brothers and sisters throughout the globe are suffering for Jesus. And I pray that these saints of God in their footsteps would lay down their lives here in the late modern West, that we would truly be a people who have forsaken this world and untethered ourselves from the entanglements of wealth and riches, that we would seek your first, your face first, and seek the kingdom first, that righteousness would be added unto us. We exalt you this morning, and we pray in earnest. May we be a people of prayer, a house of prayer, a house for the nations, and a house sent to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, is Rembrandt. This is his 17th century, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I, uh, the guys did a great job getting a little brighter version of it. You could barely see it this morning. But I just want you guys to take in this image here this morning at the, te- at the beginning of this teaching, okay? I'd like you to take in the father there on uh, my, it would be your left, my, yeah, your left. Take in the father and his embrace. The prodigal son has returned from partying, lavish living, really outdoing himself in rebellion against his father's will. And you'll note his disheveled appearance, the missing shoe there on his left foot, but the embrace of the father. There's these characters, the brother, the older brother, who is angry about the return of the son and the father's lavish care for him. There's servants peeking in, watching this scenario unfold. We did a a, a Visio Divina Tuesday evening in my community group with this particular image, and it's been moving me deeply. And I, I want you to carry this image. 
Primarily, I, I would like you and invite you to carry the image of the father embracing the wounded and broken son, the child, the father embracing the child. Hold that image. We're going to come back to it at the end of this teaching. Okay? Everybody got it? Okay. Christianity, in my opinion, is probably one of the most, if not the most sophisticated system of thought on the planet. I mean, the scope, the sheer scope of moral and philosophical, political, economic, sociological, and spiritual ideas that are addressed within Christian theology, it touches every facet of the human experience. This means that Christianity, with its attendant beliefs and behaviors, is extremely complex. Try as we may to reduce God and to reduce Christian theology and to reduce Christian practice into these nice, tidy boxes, these sort of black and white truisms, to make Christianity simple, our categories over and over and over are blown away like a house of cards in a hurricane. Now, Jesus of Nazareth, of all the spiritual teachers on the nature of reality, never attempted to simplify God. If anything, most of Jesus' teachings were quite disorienting. They were oftentimes very jarring. And he left his enemies and his most ardent and committed disciples alike after his teaching, kind of scratching their heads saying, what? What, what did he mean by that? He, did he mean what I think he meant? Because if he meant what I think he meant, that changes everything. He was quite a scandalous teacher. Now, Today is our third week in a 12-week meditation on the model and method of prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples when they had asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And if we pay attention carefully to every phrase and every word in this incredible prayer, it will raise our eyebrows. It will become a bit disorienting to us. It will set our minds spinning. The Our Father, as it has traditionally been called, opens with this uncomplicated understanding of God and immediately moves us into the depths of Christian paradox and Christian mystery. Now, last week, we looked at the opening line. This then, Jesus responded to his disciples' request, teach us to pray. This then is how you should pray, our Father. Nothing complicated about that. In fact, Jesus employed a term so simple that toddlers could utter the name in their own language to their Father in their own prayers, Abba a term of endearment, a term of warmth. Father was this earthy, common-to-every-human-being image that anyone could get their head around. There is nothing more foundational to understanding prayer, to praying rightly, to praying effectively, and to maturing in prayer than trusting that the one to whom we pray is indeed our Abba, our Father. That's very simple, right? Everybody track with that? Pretty easy to get. And then suddenly... With two more words, we are literally rocketed well beyond the scope of our outer limits of categories of God comprehension. Because Jesus says, when we pray, we pray to our Father in heaven. In heaven. Yes, God is Father. Prayer is rooted in this earthy, familial, family reality. But God is God. He is totally and completely something categorically different than any human imagery could ever describe. Now, Jesus summarized this absolute otherness by situating God outside of ourselves, outside of physicality, outside of time and space in heaven. And this is one of the many paradoxes that mature Christians learn to trust and hold intention. 
In theological language, God is eminent and God is transcendent. Can you say that with me, class? Eminent and transcendent. Good. Eminence means near, inherent, existing and operating within something. God is near. He operates within his physical creation as father. He's communing with us in intimate proximity. He is, he is eminent. But then the seemingly conflicting reality of God, he is transcendent. Transcendence means he is above, he is beyond. He is operating and existing outside of the physical and the knowable. God is beyond us. He is outside of our categories of comprehension. He is transcendent, eminent and transcendent. Prayer and maturing prayer holds this tension in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, and in our souls. Now, the biblical texts teach that sin... And this malevolent evil force, Satan, and the world, the system created by sin and Satan, the world, are always working to overemphasize one or the other facets of who God is, always working to get us off balance, the teeter-totter going too far to eminence as we pray to God or too far to transcendence as we pray to God. We mistakenly try to relieve the tension of the earthly father imagery with this cosmic eternal being in heaven imagery. And when we are deceived, we reduce God to an image that we can understand and we neglect his transcendence. And this has been the plight of humanity ever since the fall. We reframe God in our own image, attempting to be our own God. And this loss of tension reduces God to nothing more than a goofy dad who we might go to to cheer us up. We need some goofy dad jokes. This reduced God is loving, of course, like a dad, but he's certainly not authoritative. He's certainly not revered and respected. Why? Because this God is just like us. And this God would never tell us no. No one respects this God. And that is actually terrifying for humanity because this God, as he's revealed himself, is wholly other. He is something beyond our reckoning, something beyond our control. This God said through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. He actually warned the ancient Israelites that treated him as their equal. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought that I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you and I set my accusations before you. Pete Gregg, in one of our resource books that we're recommending for this teaching series, How to Pray, notes, I have come to the conclusion that many people struggle with prayer simply because they doubt that God likes them. But there are probably just as many of us who fail to fully grasp his holiness. We have a notion of divine love devoid of divine sovereignty. In losing the godness of God, we struggle with prayer because we fail to grasp the mind-blowing privilege of simply being in the presence of the living God. When we pray, we come close to our Father and fire. When we pray in the presence of God, we pray in the presence of love and justice, in the presence of mercy and wrath, in the presence of power and perfection. But remember, the devil and sin are very, very tricky. 
If we're not reducing God to our equal hashtag dad jokes, just cheer us up, don't ever tell me no type God, then we err the other way and we make God this untouchable, unknowable, distant deity with whom we could never interact. The term agnostic literally means unknowable. When faced with the realities of a life that does not make sense and the complexities of a God that we cannot fully comprehend, some of us in anger, some of us in resignation, some of us in just absolute despair, give up on knowing God at all. He's beyond us. He's outside of us. Why try? And this is equally tragic in the life of an apprentice of Jesus practicing his way of prayer. And so Jesus gives us the means of holding the tension of eminence and transcendence, of earthly fatherly imagery and this heavenly outside of ourself imagery. He gives us the very line by which we hold the tension in our process of prayer. Hallow his name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, we've got to do some groundwork here because the term hallowing no longer has any resonance with us. How many of you used that in a sentence last week? Hallow your name, apart from the prayer. By the way, at 12 o'clock, set your phones. 12 o'clock, set your alarms. Every day at 12 o'clock, this entire church is praying, Our Father who art in heaven. 12 o'clock, our alarms go off. We stop whatever we're doing. We bow. Just close your eyes right in the middle of 80-mile-an-hour traffic on California freeway and pray to God, (laughs) our Father. This translation, hallowed be your name, it has no resonance with us. We've lost the oomph of it. Now, let me give you some other translations that try to capture it. New Living Translation says, may your name be kept holy. The New English Translation, may your name be honored. Uh, Matthew 6, 9, we want everyone to respect you. Here's a translation that I found this past week that I think was a complete swing and a miss, as bad as you possibly could get this. The word on the street Bible says, dad... You're up there on your own, and you're holy. Your name is very special. (laughs) Your name is very special? Dude, I do not get like cosmic eternal bow before the transcendent God of the heavens and the universe vibes from, you're special, God. It just doesn't capture me. Now, even the definitions of this English word, hallow, and the Greek term that Jesus uses here, agazio, agazio, they are not helpful. They're not resonant with us as moderns. Greek and English dictionaries define this term hollow to honor, to make holy, to consecrate, to sanctify, a whole list of words that none of us used in a sentence last week either. The secular aquarium that we swim in has long lost its appreciation and understanding for words like hollow, holy, honor, consecrate, sanctify. Those are honestly just weird churchy words. They're like relics of a religious culture that has long since gone the wayside. And I can almost guarantee none of us are going to use them this week apart from our 12 o'clock prayer, and none of us are going to hear them in a modern context. I think to help us understand what Jesus meant by hollow the name, the best way to do that is to think about it in the context of fame, the context of fame and glory and significance. So let's do a little thought experiment here this morning. This will be fun. Let's do a little back and forth this morning. Who, somebody shout, or all of you shout, the name of he who shall not be named. Voldemort. Voldemort. You guys all just said it. Great. Uh, Who is the, who's the one who survived? Go ahead, guys. Come on. You guys don't know who survived? Say it louder. Okay, good. So we've got Voldemort and Harry Potter. Here's what I want you to see. Those names in the Harry Potter universe and in modern society because of the movies and the books, they're hollowed. They're hollowed. How so? Well, Voldemort, am I saying that right? 
Don't say, Voldemort? Voldemort. Voldemort, got it. I obviously am not a huge Harry Potter fan, but my family obviously is. So for negative reason, Voldemort is, he is hallowed because he was this ruthless murderer. He was, he was this terrorist. And so his name was remembered. It was set apart in the, in the characters of the universe of Harry Potter. Harry Potter's name, in contrast to that, was famous for surviving Voldemort's death blow. Their names are hollowed in the Harry Potter universe. Let's do another thought experiment here. Give me two Kardashian sisters' names. Just do it. What? Kim and Chloe. Does anybody else know any of the other ones? Courtney? Kylie? Kay What's the brother's name? Rob, oh, well done. We've got a Kardashian fan sitting back here to the left. <laughs> Can I tell you guys a quick story? <laughs> Just a brief one. We may go a little bit long today, but literally my wife and I on our 10-year anniversary, our friends sent us to this coffee shop, and this coffee shop was serving liquid crack cocaine. And so we drank this coffee, and we ended up staying up. All we could not sleep one night. So what did we end up watching? Was it Kim and Chloe in Miami? Something like that. I, we literally watched eight hours on repeat of whatever in Mexico, I'm scarred forever. But literally, what I want you guys to see is somehow Kim, Courtney, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie, I had to look that up this week, by the way. They are all remembered why they are famous. I have no clue why they're famous, they just are famous. And we hollow, that is a hollowing of their names in our social imagination. We hold them in a special place. For some of us, we associate their names with something separate, something bigger, something better, something more powerful, something more beautiful, something more worthy, different from ourselves. Let's do one more. Name the most famous civil rights leader in U.S. history. Martin Luther King Jr. His name, hallowed by statutes in history books and on your lips this morning. Why? Because of the noble work that he accomplished through the civil rights movement. Now, Jesus said, when you pray to your father, to hold the tensions of this fatherly image, to hold the complexity of this earthy and heavenly reality that he is, remember his name. Separate his name in your heart and hold it in a unique place in your imagination. Hollow his name by recognizing that it represents something powerful, something fearful, something categorically different than you. But to hollow his name, friends, is more than remembrance. And this is key. The incomparable late Tim Keller commented on this word hollow, saying, to hollow something is to treat it as absolutely sacred and ultimate. It means to make it something your ultimate concern, to make it the most important thing, to make it the most crucial thing, to make it the most sacred thing, the ultimate thing in your life, to make it the supreme beauty, the supreme aim of your life. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God to make himself our absolute everything, above everything and anything else that we might give our attention to, trust in, hope in, adoration to. Now, on the name of God itself, on the name of God himself, God has many names throughout the biblical narrative, but they all have their origin in this pivotal moment between Moses and God at the beginning of the Exodus narratives. Moses is being called out of exile in the desert. He's coming out of exile by God's call, and he's going to spearhead a slave society's uprising against its oppressors, Pharaoh and Egypt. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush, but the bush does not burn down. And as Moses approaches this burning bush, God commands him to remove his shoes because he's on holy ground. 
the father in the form of fire has heard the cries of his children and is preparing to move. So Moses asks God in the form of fire, the burning bush, who shall I say sent me to deliver the Israelites? Now, when Moses asks this question, he's asking for way more than a name. He was asking, who are you? What are you like? What kind of God will I be representing? And throughout the Hebrew Bible, names represented the character and the attributes of the individual that was named. And so God responds by giving Moses not a title, but this strange verb. God gives a name to himself, which is a verb, Y-H. W-H. In the Hebrew consonants, it's yod He vav He, Yahweh or Jehovah, which is our English transliteration of the verb, which basically translates, I will be what I am, or I am. It's this, it's this very interesting structure. God said to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, Yahweh. So when you come across Lord in all capitals in a lot of your Bibles, you guys are coming across this, con this consonantal construction of God's name, this verb, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Some will translate it Lord with a capital L, but oftentimes you need to understand that the ancient Jewish people considered this name, this, this Yod, He, Vav, He in the, in the Hebrew text, when they came across it, they would not pronounce it out loud. It was so holy to them. They separated it so severely that they would not speak it in public or in private. So when they came across this name, which is literally hundreds of times in the Hebrew Bible, they replaced the reading of Yahweh with Adonai, which translates most literally Lord or Master. So they would not ever speak this name. To this day, we don't actually know how it was actually pronounced, if ever. This name, Yahweh, encompassed and represented God's holiness, his other-thanness, his transcendence, this God who is out there but is also here. I am. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. He's the one beyond us, and he is the one with us. He is Father, and he is fire. Now, through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, this name, Yahweh, would also be attached to various descriptors at certain events in the characters' lives as they interacted with this God that described what Yahweh was and what he would do for his people. So we have Yehovah or Yahweh Jireh, Yaira, God provides. We have Jehovah Rapha, God heals. We have Jehovah Shalom, Shalom, the God who makes all things wrong, right? The God that has made all things wrong, right? Or justice or peace. Jehovah Sedekanu, which is God is righteousness. Over and over and over, this name is associated with these things. Now, a second name that's very important. Just stay with me here for a little bit of Bible teaching. Second name that's very important. Some 2,500 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Elohim. Elohim. Elohim is best understood as expressing uh, intensity. God makes himself known by this name. He is the Lord of extensive glory and riches. He is the God who exercises preeminence and power in the created cosmos. He's this incomparable God in every way. He is subject to no one and no thing. He is the exalted one over all gods, all humanity, all creation. As you travel through the Hebrew Bible, God has given so many different names and so many different titles. He's called the great king, a good shepherd, a wonderful counselor, ancient of days, the rock, a refuge and fortress, a strong tower, and so 
so many other titles. We just do not have time to sit here and trace all the names of God. But what we learn as we read and revere the names of God in the Hebrew Bible is that this God is the God who does whatever he wants to do, and he is all that we could ever need. And above all, this God is good and true and beautiful. And so he makes these characteristics of himself famous as we hollow his name in our hearts. Now, of course, we'd be remiss not to acknowledge the name of God in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, when Jesus arrived on the scene in the Gospels, he constantly referred to himself with a particular Greek construction, especially in the Gospel of John. Ego, me. Can you guys all say that? Ego, me. Say it again. Ego, me. I just want to keep you guys with me. It's a unique Greek construction, and it most literally translates, I am. Over and over and over, Jesus referred to himself as, I am. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the door of salvation. I am the way, the truth, the life, and the resurrection. Yahweh, living water. Yahweh, bread of life. Yahweh, door of salvation. Yahweh, way, salvation, truth, life, resurrection. Now, the first century Jewish disciples, they had come to believe that the very God whose name they wouldn't even pronounce had embodied himself among them in flesh, in Jesus. And what that meant is that everything that anyone and everyone through all of time and all of history and into eternity could ever want or need culminated in the name of Jesus, God among us, hallowed be his name. This is why the disciples went forth, and we are called to no less to preach and herald. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. To hallow the name of God is to proclaim and make famous the name of Jesus. This is the 2,000-year-old command for you and I and all of God's people to herald the gospel, to tell others the good news of God's coming among us to save us. This morning, we took time and we prayed for the global church in pre-gathering prayer, but we also want to pray for the local church. We are praying that you would be anointed as prophets and priests and pastors and evangelists to go and in this generation, once again, boldly share the gospel of Jesus Christ, hallowing his name amongst your workplaces and your classrooms and your families. Does that mean you'll be persecuted? Absolutely. This is the call to the church in this generation. A restored, renewed vision of heralding the name of Jesus and making his name famous. But there's more to hallowing Jesus' name than just this internal recognition and this external proclamation. We we hollow God's name through our conduct as well. What we do this week with our bodies, what we do with our money, our politics, our justice, our relationships, what we do in our conduct will either profane the name of Jesus, the name of God, or will hollow it and make it famous. Now, the ancient prophet Ezekiel, he was rebuking the people of God because they had profaned God's name by their faithless and disobedient behavior. Yet, yet, even though they had profaned his name with their idolatry, their sexual behaviors, their political partnerships. God never ceased and always intended to heal them by hollowing his name among them once again in front of all the watching nations. We read this in Ezekiel. I'll read through it quickly. I had concern, God says through Ezekiel, I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. 
Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Now, the prophet Ezekiel goes on in chapter 36 and chapter 37, and he essentially says that the nation of Israel will once again hallow God's name rather than profaning God's name because God will give them a brand new heart. God will soften their hearts of flesh and give them new restored hearts that are pliable and malleable and obedient to God's will. Essentially, God says, you've profaned my name and your political partnerships and your behaviors and your conduct out in the world. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to restore you by giving you a new heart that aligns you with my will in the subterranean places of your deepest being. And out of that, as you learn to obey out of what I've given you, the onlooking nations, the surrounding nations will see you and my goodness to you and my grace to you. And they will say, Yahweh is good. Yahweh is amazing. I honor him as the conduct of God's people is shifted and transformed by repentance and this new heart that they've been given. So when you and I pray tomorrow at 12 o'clock or today at 12 o'clock, actually, hallowed be your name, know that you are asking God to give you a heart after his heart, both his father's heart and a heart of fire with his perfections and his moral power. To pray, hallowed be your name, you are literally asking for bold obedience in a world that has rebelled against him so that he would be made famous through our conduct locally and globally. Now listen, this is so key. For Jesus' hearers, including you and I, this was a matter of life and death. The Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that to truly honor God's name, one must be willing to lay down their physical life for him. Martyrdom was the ultimate form of hallowing God's name. This is why Peter, James, John, Paul, and millions of followers of Jesus throughout history and right up to this day have counted themselves privileged to be persecuted, to be mocked, to be misunderstood, to be marginalized, and even to be murdered for their commitment to the name of Jesus. I received an email just this morning, 5.30 this morning, from my mentor, Dr. Gary Bashirs. We, uh, I'm teaching up at Western Seminary this fall, and we use a particular curriculum up there, and the, the creators of that curriculum use it to go into war-torn countries and do trauma therapy with it. It's called Mending the Soul. I got an email this morning that one of the primary leaders who's currently in the Congo, uh, their son was abducted last night. Their son was abducted last night. Hallow his name. Dear saints of God, please with me, please with me. Settle in your souls that the suffering God allows into our lives is suffering. But the saints of God across the globe, a father's son has been abducted over the last 24 hours in the name of Jesus. To which some of us as American Christians say, well, they need to get out of there. Do they? Should they? Should we? Go. This is the depth of this prayer. And friends, that's why the Our Father is such a dangerous prayer for Christians to pray. 
Because praying the Our Father sends most of us into these uncharted waters of sacrifice and levels of commitment that we really don't have categories for yet. So let's ask this question as we get ready to come to communion. Why? Why does God want us to hollow his name in such a way? And why is God so resolute in hollowing his name by giving us a willing heart to go, to lay down our lives for him? Why does our conduct and holiness matter so much to him? I mean, is God just some sort of narcissistic megalomaniac up there who's just desperate for us to praise him and honor him? No, 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 no. God wants us, God hollows his name and he wants us to hollow his name because what you want the most, your highest flourishing, your greatest happiness, he knows will be found in hollowing his name. This is what creation was designed to do, to hollow God's name, to make his name famous. It's hardwired into every fiber of our being because that is what aligns us with creation's original design. Now, understand this. God no more needs to be praised than a sunrise needs to demand that we tell it it's beautiful. If the ocean could talk, do you think the ocean would say to us as we approach the beach out there at the Pacific Beach, do you think the ocean would shout at us, tell me I'm vast and huge and deep and beyond your finding out? You must tell me. No. You look at the ocean like, that thing is vast and deep and huge and amazing. It is what it is. So too, a sunrise is beautiful. It just is. It doesn't cease to be beautiful because we ignore it or we don't see it or we deny it or even more crazy, we deny its existence. God is holy, he is good, he is wonderful, and he hollows his name amongst humanity because that restores creation design, it restores us to the reality of what is, it aligns us with what is, and it restores true joy and flourishing. To hollow God's name, actually, friends, is to finally begin to be made holy, and to be made holy is to be made fully human, and to be fully human is finally happy, and this is what Jesus said, I want you to obey me so that your joy will be complete. Obey me in holiness, not so that you can be these self-flagellating religious prudes, but so that you can be the fullness of humanity, fully happy, fully joyful, fully flourishing as you hollow my name and make my name famous. And I too, in return, will hollow your name. This is where we're going to close. And then we're going to come back to that Rembrandt painting and we're going to take communion. This is huge for me. This is my own personal section in this sermon. This one's just Pastor Dan pastoring Dan. Okay? So listen. As we hollow God's name, we are hollowed ourselves. To understand this, let's go back to our fame analogy. Our culture is, a, is obsessed with celebrity. So cue up the Kardashians once again. I don't know why. Generation Z, um, and particularly Gen Z's kids probably, it, we are the first society where some of the earliest memories may be of ourselves posing for Instagram. That's, that's how in tech we are now. Social media has made fame a possibility for almost everybody, even if it's still just a slim chance. So much so that 57% of Gen Z, uh, in one particular research poll that I stumbled across, they said, 57% of them said, one of their top goals in life is to become a famous influencer. A famous influencer. Now, we may kind of snicker at that a little bit, those of us that weren't raised in the internet world, but the hunger for fame sits in all of us. We just pursue it across different contexts, power, acclaim, significance. These things, this desire drives all of us. Now, some time ago for myself, this is many years ago now, I was in a time of really deep silence, and I just kept asking the same question, why? Why do I want to be significant? Why do I want to be known? Why? Layer after layer, 10, 15, 20 minutes, 
Why do, journal, why do I want to be seen? Why do, I want to, why do I want to be famous? And as I asked this question over and over and over, the Lord took me way deep down into my heart, and slowly I just began to realize, oh, my need to be seen and valued and famous, it's just deep, deep down a need to be loved. I just want to be accepted and valued. In fact, in the language that we're using today, I want to be hollowed. That's a good thing, friend. Your desire to be hollowed is God-given. Your desire to be accepted, set apart, remembered, respected, revered, adored, thought of, your desire to be hollowed, that's a good thing. But then we went another layer deeper, and it got a little bit insidious, because underneath there was the original lie of Satan, and I found myself saying as well, I want to be worshipped. I want to be like God. I want to be hollowed like God. That's a hard thing to face, friends. If you haven't faced that one yet, that's a gnarly demon sitting in the middle of all of our hearts. And so the restorative power of praying, hallowed be your name, is that that prayer, when we pray it in earnest, it returns us to our original state as image bearers. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are returning to God the Father's love, and slowly over time, if we'll slow down and let the onion layers peel away deep down, we will begin to discover a sense of being adored and revered and applauded and made famous by God himself. His adoration begins to satisfy. His applause of us begins to satisfy as God hallows us. At the same time, when you come into those deep places of a sense of security and identity in God himself, in this Trinitarian love, you suddenly begin to realize how silly it is to want to be worshipped when you're in the presence of this massive, transcendent being who calls himself Abba, Father, tender and quiet. It's this amazing, mystical, reciprocal process that he invites us into when we hollow his name. We hollow his name by preaching and heralding. We hollow his name by conduct. We hollow his name by remembering. And in so doing, he hollows us and we become more holy and more human and more happy until the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Anthony, if we could throw that painting up. This is how we hollow his name. This we return to the sun and notice, though it's his own fault, he's halfway to barefoot because he's on hallowed holy ground with his father. He's returned, and the father is hollowing his name in the midst of all the nations, all the witnesses. How does the father hollow his name? By taking you and I, the prodigals, who have been out there trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to make ourselves famous, doing whatever we can to hollow our hearts in the eyes of the world. And when we finally come to the end of ourselves saying, my father loves me, I'm going to go back to him, he embraces us. And all the nations, all of humanity looks on and says, that is a good and gracious father. I want that father. Today, to hollow the father's name is just to return to his love, to return to his love disheveled and broken, disoriented, uncertain, worn out, tired, burned out, confused, distraught, despair, aching and hungry for something more than what you've had. This is where you come. And maybe you feel like your shoes have been blown off by the world lately. You just feel like you're tattered and torn up. This is how you hollow his name. Not by standing in some sort of religious might, I'm going to get it right, but by bowing and receiving the presence of God in his embrace, his infinite love of you, his infinite care for you. This is what you carry into your workplaces this week. 
This is how we bring people to Jesus. If you're here today learning about Christianity, this is the picture of Christianity. This is the picture of the God that you've been looking for. He holds you in your pain and in your brokenness. And in your pain and brokenness, whether you know it or not, the minute that you bow before him in that way and you just let him hold you, you are hallowing his name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, 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 hallowed. Holy be your name. Father, meet us in communion this day as we seek, Father, to return to you. To return is repentance. That's the old churchy word, repentance. Return, come back, rest, trust, receive. These are all tones of repentance. As we sing to you, Spirit of God, may you speak to each of these souls where you are asking them to be embraced by you, where we can let go and find you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing and then I'll lead us in a brief communion meditation.